We have been running pretty long, haven't we? We've been doing better lately. This is episode 53. 53. My news stories kind of suck too, but oh well. Mine are terrible. <laughs> Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of 4.30 in the morning. This is your boy, Ben. And Pat is back as well. 53, man. Episode number 53. I've got nothing for 53. Marquise Pouncey. Okay. And Kendrick Green. <laughs> okay. Anyways, um, oh, we're not we're not talking football this week. Episode number fifty three. It's gonna be a big episode. Before we get into our news stories, though, I want to do a really quick wrap up. Sure. Last week's episode was very well received. The Mandela effect. Mm-hmm. Good topic. It ended up being a very yeah. interesting topic. A it lot was a of fun topic. People were telling me about it, like talking to me about it. Sweet. And the numbers were pretty good on that one. Tim was talking about it a little bit. Now he didn't really fact check us this time, but he said a good way to think about the Mandela effect. This thing about reality is a tree, and it's like all the same thing, but there's like different branches, mm. and it's possible to jump from one branch to the other, but it's possible that you could jump to a branch without even really knowing that you jumped to a different branch. So like the different versions of the Mandela effect are just different branches of reality, and you can like exist, you could like see everybody on the tree, but you're on slightly different branches, basically. So that's how Tim described it. So would multiple people be on the same branch? It's very possible. There's an infinite number of so spaces. is that why some people see yes. the same thing and some people don't yes okay okay tim i like that and you can see the other people on the branch and maybe you don't even know that you're on a different branch but you are you know what i mean sure so it's possible is what tim's trying to say so is he says that these are realities is that, is that what branches he of reality is the way that he described it so what are the branches there's an infinite number of branches okay and there's an infinite number of space upon each branch hmm. interesting and you can see all the branches at the same time and you can know that everybody else is out there. You just might be on a different branch. The branches are invisible. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Okay. Now okay. that is me interpreting what Tim said. We'll so, have to we'll have to have Tim on the show, yeah. and so he can elaborate what these branches are. Because that was much more me uh, interpreting what he was saying as opposed to me actually quoting what he said. That's so. interesting, though. Okay. Anyways, that's our late night wrap up. Nice. We probably have a lot more we should have wrapped up, but fuck it. Fuck it. Anyways, how many news stories you got today, sir? I have two. I have a couple fun facts, too. But All right, you can go ahead and get you started. You want me to get started? This is from Benzinga.com. You ever hear of it? No. Me neither. Elon Musk is now worth more than Jeff Bezos and Mark Zuckerberg combined. Doesn't surprise me. The world's richest person got a lot richer Monday with Tesla Inc. closing at $1,208.74 a share, up 9% on the day. The majority of Musk's wealth is credited to his stake in Tesla of around 227 million shares and stake in the space company SpaceX, which Musk founded. Musk is now worth $335.1 billion, increasing his wealth by $165 billion year to date. His wealth is so high that it now tops combination of two people in the top 10. Jeff Bezos with a net worth of $192.1 billion as of Monday and Facebook Inc. co-founder Mark Zuckerberg which is 7th on the list with a valuation of $121 billion as of Sunday. That's pretty interesting. Now the whole net worth thing is the dumbest thing of all time. And yes. our liberal media, should I say that? I don't know if I can say that. Go ahead. 
Our fucking okay. liberal <laughs> media has no common sense when it comes to net worth. Yes, Elon Musk is very rich. Yes. No, he does not have $331 billion sitting in a bank account. Yes, exactly. It's all tied up in stock, which we the people determine the value of, unfortunately. Yes. And it's, is it's, how that works. And it's not realized income. It's not It's, it's not, not realized. It's, not, it's real, not realized. It's not money that's sitting there. Yes. He has to cash out all that to have the $331 billion. That is what it's valued at. And he can't do that because number one, if you were to go on a selling spree, if he were to decide to sell off, he's talking about selling off $6 billion right now. That would devalue his, that would devalue everything. So every time his company, every time he sells a a chunk of shares, the, the value of the share is going down because it isn't money. It is the snapshot of the perception of the value of what he has. Yes. It's not actual money. So then you're into a situation where, okay, he's about going to sell off $6 billion worth of stock because the UN claims that they can solve world hunger with $6 billion. <sighs> so now Elon Musk is like, I'll tell you what, if you can prove it to me and you can track where the money is going, I will sell off $6 billion just to prove the point. And my bet is that you guys can't do this properly. But even if you were to start the process of selling $6 billion worth of stock, sure, it might not seem like a lot with three hundred and thirty one billion dollars but what's that going 35 percent is going straight to capital gains tax they're trying to raise that now they're trying to raise that and you know what they're trying to do now they're trying to tax you on unrealized they're trying to tax unrealized gain which is which is going to tank the economy because now there's going to be no incentive to invest at all for anybody there's no incentive to do anything ever is what that's going to say yeah and it's going to create a horrible economic stagnation that's we're going towards the shithole. It doesn't even. It, it doesn't even if you don't want to talk about the economic stagnation. How dumb of that that idea it's a, it's is. A, it's 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 totally unconstitutional. It's, it's, it's unco- not allowed. It's unconstitutional and it's impo- <laughs> it's impossible. It's impossible to do. It's impossible to even manage because let's think about it this way. Everything unrealized gain is what they're going to start taxing because a gain isn't a gain until you sell the fucking stock. Exactly. It can be worth. I've had my net worth go up and down all the time. Yes. But I'm not selling it. So. It doesn't really matter because it's not actual money. Right. It's the idea of money. It's an idea. Yes. It's a fugazi. So then you're going to say, well, we're going to start taxing unrealized gain because the billionaires aren't paying their fair share. <sighs> Which, is it really Elon Musk's fault because he created a company that the world seems to value a whole lot? Exactly. If this company wasn't worth money, people wouldn't invest in it. People wouldn't act like it's worth that money. It's all about acting like what it's worth. Exactly. So then you're into a situation where... Okay, we're going to start taxing unrealized gains. According to investment laws, you get tax credit if you realize losses. Do I get to start claiming tax credit on unrealized losses? Because I <laughs> hypothetically thought about making an investment that would have lost me a lot of money. Do I get to claim a tax credit on an unrealized loss? Can I, so let's say, okay, let's say, for example, I buy into a company that's worth $100 a share. Tax time comes around, oh shit, that company is worth $50, cents, $50 a share. I've lost half my money, but not really. Mm-hmm. Even though I think it's going to go up long term. Yep. Do I get to claim a tax credit of on course an <laughs> unrealized loss? Exactly. Does the federal government give me money because of course not? it's an unrealized loss? You, you, you get what I'm saying? Of course, yeah. But then even, even if you treat assets as assets, and the question is where do assets get, where does the line get drawn? And there is going to be an arbitrary line drawn if they decide to go about this. There's going to be an arbitrary line where it's I, you assets know, above this amount. I'd, I'd be surprised if this goes through, honestly. It, it can't. It can't. And anybody who has any economic sense whatsoever knows that this can't happen because it, there's no common sense to it. So then we could take it a step further. Let's say you own a house. 
and that's where all your net worth is. And a lot of people, especially a lot of old people, their one asset is their house. Yep. Everything else, all their income is Social Security, and they don't have a lot of savings. That is technically an unrealized asset yep. because you own a house and you haven't sold it yet, so you haven't cashed it in. Do you have to sell off a room of your house every year? Exactly. Or a few bricks of the house every year to meet that concept? It's unreal. Is that what we're going to start doing? It because no you're, you're treating everything, that that's how it is. And people are going to be like, oh, well, we're not going to do it to this. But you're going to be drawing an arbitrary line somewhere. Right. Whether it's a million dollars worth of assets, whether it's a billion dollars, you're going to be drawing an arbitrary line somewhere. And how the hell do we even... How are we at this point? I have no idea. It's all it's about unbelievable. It's all about the mainstream media generating a misconception about wealth because the mainstream media is owned by old money people. Yes. They are threatened by new money money people. You think Elon Musk was born into a billion dollar family? Fuck no. No. Where did Jeff Bezos come from? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. His mom I think his mom was seventeen when he had him. He grew up from nothing. And he made it. Look at fucking even Zuckerberg. Yeah. He's a complete weirdo. Like, I don't like the guy. <laughs> but he created the product that just happened to have a lot of value to the world. And, Whether it's good or bad. And the media has always pushed the narrative that the the wealthy don't pay their fair share. And it's such a lie. It is such a lie. We have the most progressive tax system in, in the world here in the United States. The top, I don't know about the, that, the, but the top, it is. It, no, yeah. it is the most is progressive. Really? Yes. The, the, the low income earners in the United States are hardly taxed at all if anything. And the top 1%, uh, they account for more than 40% of all net income taxes in the United States. So we have a very progressive tax system in the United States. And there's a lot more to tax than just income tax. That's the other thing, too. Yes. Think about even the average citizen. Of all net federal taxes, that's the top 1% accounts for 40% of it. Sure. But even nobody understands taxes. And if you start breaking down what's going on with actual tax, there's no way that a certain party would ever get voted for ever again if you actually give people the true information. Sure. Because... How are we taxed? We're taxed on income immediately. Yep. Social Security, Medicare, federal tax is going to add up to probably 15% of everybody's tax bill immediately. Yep. Then you count in the state, then you count in local taxes, and then that goes higher the more that you earn. Yep. So, like, we probably bring home, I don't know, you're probably taxed differently since you have a kid. I bring home, like, 71% of what I earn and what I've earned in various taxes. Mm-hmm. So, I'm paying 29% on what I earn. Now, that is just a snapshot because I'm also paying 7% sales tax on every single thing that I buy that's not deemed a necessity. Right. Which is an awful lot of things, including gasoline, which I need to get to work. Right. Now, people are going to say, oh, you don't really need it, but still, our bus is running at 4 o'clock in the morning to take me home from work? No, they're not. (laughs) Right. So I'm paying tax somewhere. Right. I'm paying sales tax everywhere. I have to pay tax, and it is a tax to pay your license and registration fees. Yep. That's a tax. You're not paying for a service, you're taxed. Yep. For the privilege of to own a car and to operate a vehicle. My registration is due in a month. I got to get that shit together. But that's a tax. Taxes exist everywhere. Every Everywhere you turn. And even like access to any type of service, like the internet, taxed. Yep. Online orders, taxed. You can get taxed three or four times on one single transaction if you think about it, if you break it down. Oh, yeah. And that's just us average Americans. And now they're going to start saying that, oh, we're going to have to cut a lot of this. <laughs> but now they're going to start saying that, okay... $600 transactions or higher need to be reported to the IRS. Yeah, that's un- that's unreal to me. So how, how that's, How's that even going to be possible to do? And the argument is that, well, we're going to make sure the billionaires are paying their fair share. Billionaires have accountants. Yes. <laughs> that make sure they're following tax code. And they're not even cheating on the taxes. They're just following the tax code. People are acting like this is cheating. And no, playing by the rules is not 
cheating. <laughs> right. The problem is that rich people have access to accountants to help them play by the rules. Like, Trump comes off as an asshole talking about what he says, but he's exactly right. That's how business is. Right. And even in business school, you learn how to how you assess tax. And tax is assessed after everything else is paid for. Mm-hmm. If you have any profit left over, you pay tax out of that to get your net income. You don't pay taxes on dollars coming in if you've got bills to pay. Right. You pay the bills and then you pay the tax. Right. That is just how everything has always worked. It's not like it's some new fancy shenanigan to stop paying taxes. Because what if you start paying taxes and you can't pay your bills? Then what does that do to the economy? Tanks. Exactly. Because everybody needs to get the dollars coming in. Yep. Because every dollar that you're withholding is a dollar that should have been going somewhere else. Exactly. Should the government be getting paid before the people that do their fair business with you? No. Because what does the government do? Does the government facilitate anything there? No. Probably not. So we'll see how much of that makes it into the... <laughs> into the we'll have to save that for the thought process. It was a, it was, that was a hot button, a hot, hot button <laughs> issue. So Elon Musk, the richest man had, in the world. I had a feeling that article would bring about this conversation. <laughs> Did you do that on purpose? Kind of. <laughs> okay, well, that chewed up some time at least. Yeah. No so shit. now you guys all know my thoughts on uh, our current political environment and how dumb it is. <laughs> and it's not like it's oppressing. It's oppressing the middle class because all those taxes that I talked about are all things we have to face every day. Yep, 100%. Media, does, media doesn't talk about any of that. Drives me nuts. So, anyways, good news story. Thank you. I don't have much of a problem with Elon Musk. Me neither. I he like creates him. products and he adds value to the economy. Yeah, I don't. I don't mind him at all. I don't understand. He's created thousands of jobs. I don't understand the big deal. Anyways, my first news story is a little bit different. This one comes from Today.com, but I saw this one pretty much everywhere. One hundred and six-year-old woman credits longevity to drinking a beer every day. Hmm. Margaret the Luo said the giant delivery of her favorite beer made her feel important. A 106-year-old Pennsylvania woman who credits her longevity to drinking a cold beer every day was surprised with the delivery of her favorite beer last Thursday. Basically what happened is this woman, Margaret, 106 years old, drank a yingling lager every single day. That's just what she does. Okay. She loves it. She says it's the best beer she's ever found. Uh, once she started drinking yingling, she didn't go back to anything else. Yingling found out about it and delivered her enough cases of beer to get her to age 107 because they thought it was really cool that she was drinking yingling beer all the time. I'm telling you. From the time I started to drink it, I have never drank anybody else's, she said, adding her favorite part of the drink is a slight bitter taste that she can't find in other beers. I can't believe they're still in business, which that doesn't make any sense if it's, if it's a great beer. Why can't she believe that they're still in business? She probably can't believe she's still alive. Probably, honestly. <laughs> to honor Duilo, the brewery surprised her with a truck full of her favorite beverage. So she's got enough yingling to last quite a while. I have one question. Yes. Where is she storing all of this yingling? I don't know. Is she keeping it all cold? Well, it's Pennsylvania, and it's this time of year, so okay. you can probably keep that shit outside, and you're probably, pretty good. yeah. Anyways, I think that's pretty cool. Yeah, it's pretty sweet. A beer a day good keeps the her. doctor away. Good for her. That's awesome. 106 years old. She's going to be 107 soon. Keep going, man. That's my first news story. We'll see if that comes together. That's awesome. This is a bad episode already, <laughs> but what do you got, buddy? I got one. This is from our favorite odd news. Long-tailed bat. Wins New Zealand's Bird of the Year contest. Long-tailed bats? Yes. A New Zealand conservation charity announced its coveted Bird of the Year award has been won by its first non-bird ever entered in the competition, a bat. The Forest and Bird Conservation Charity said the long-tailed bat was included in a list of finalists to raise awareness and support for the species, and the bat was chosen from the list of finalists by online voters. Kiwis clearly love their native bat, 
Bird of the Year spokeswoman Laura Keown said in a statement. A bird for bats is also a vote for predator control, habitat restoration, and climate action to protect our bats and their feathered neighbors. Long-tailed bats are listed as nationally critical by New Zealand Department of Conservation. <laughs> nationally critical? Yes. Now, how the hell do they come up with that classification? <laughs> <laughs> Oh, I thought that was hilarious. Talk about rubber stamping some nonsense. Forest and Bird said 56,733 votes were cast this year, the most in the competition's history. The long-tailed bat received 7,031 votes, giving it a steady lead against the second-place finisher and last year's winner, the Kakapoo. <laughs> Kakapoo? Yes, the Kakapoo. Which received 4,072 votes. So 56,000 people yeah, had enough time that, on their hands to participate in this? I thought that was unbelievable. I don't know, dude. New Zealand is quickly waning on the cool country list as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, that, that's ridiculous. Well, I mean, this is also the country that had a, had a wizard on the payroll for yeah, no how shit. many years? New Zealand, I'm just, I could not believe that. 56,000 people were, was involved in this thing. That's got to be like a quarter of the population of that entire country. Yeah, no I mean, shit. Shit. I don't know. It must be a, a big thing over there, I guess. My faith in humanity is dwindling quickly. A vote for bats is also a vote for predator control, habitat restoration, and climate action. See, we haven't even addressed the major problem with this. <laughs> is that a bat is not a bird. Exactly. That is the first <laughs> big thing about this is it's not a bird in a bird competition. Whatever the hell this thing is. I mean, we are like like everything is fluid these days. I mean, yeah. Maybe the maybe the bird maybe the bat identifies as a bird. Exactly. That's what I think. I don't know. It's, we have to be tolerant of the bat. I guess. <laughs> um, Unreal. We're floating a lot of lines here. There don't seem, seem to be a whole lot of parameters in place. Exactly. To address this kind of thing. So yeah, this is. I thought I thought that was pretty funny. I thought you'd enjoy that one. Yeah, I don't know if that's as good as uh, Vladimir Putin being voted in Russia's hottest man. But <laughs> that one that was, was pretty a good. good. That was a good one. That's pretty good. People have a lot of time to vote in these different things. I guess that's great. Anyways, my next one is uh, this is numb. We're gonna be going back to episode one of our show with this one. Uh oh. Might be thinking Jetpack Man. Uh oh. We're not going there. Oh, we're, we're going, going somewhere going there. else. Uh, this new story i saw this one on social media yesterday and my source is gonna be brobible.com which you've probably seen that website before i think i have nba fans are convinced lebron james's clone attempted lakers game to watch lebron play so basically uh last night october 31st halloween night the lakers played in los angeles and basically lebron made it i think he made a dunk or something and the camera zoomed in on him and over his shoulder you could see a guy sitting like behind the basket in the stadium wearing like a bucket hat but he had, like, the beard, and he looked exactly like LeBron James. <laughs> like, exactly like him. I haven't seen like, this. Have huge, you seen it? Yes, I've seen the picture. The huge-ass build. You know how, I mean, you can't yeah. you can't just be some guy trying to dress up like LeBron. You have to be pretty pretty well built to make this happen. I gotta look this up. And, like, the, obviously, the, the hat is, like, covering, like, the top of the head a little bit. But this guy looks exactly like LeBron. So the problem with this is, obviously, people are like, what the hell is going on? Why is there a guy that looks exactly like LeBron James in the background? Are you looking? <laughs> of the picture yet is that it yep <laughs> oh my god 
Isn't that a dead ringer? That is ridiculous. So obviously that created a lot of rampant speculation on social media as to who the hell this guy is. Yeah, it's crazy. Some people have speculated that LeBron James is a time traveler hmm. and has conducted an experiment where he's able to like travel back in time to watch himself play or maybe travel forward in time to watch himself play. Huh. Other people speculate that he has cloned himself. Now, I'm kind of more in line with this theory because of the whole Larry Johnson thing. Maybe part of his blood sacrifice way back in the right. first episode was to create a clone of himself. Right. Now, this is LeBron's 19th year in the NBA. 19 seasons. Right. It's a long time. He shows no sign of slowing down. Right. Maybe that's because he's got a clone playing half the games <laughs> for him. Yeah, he seems like he's... There's a lot less wear and tear yeah. if you got two clones or two guys playing. Maybe there's a lot of clones. Yeah, he might have multiple. Now, why would LeBron risk bringing his clone to the game, though? That's a question that I can't figure out. Maybe one got loose. It is possible. And he doesn't want to blow it. He doesn't want to blow the cover, so he, sure. can't, he can't do anything about it. He's just got to let him be. Hopefully he doesn't mess anything up. Yeah, but you looked at that photo. That looks exactly like him, doesn't it? That does look a lot like him. So Yeah, it's crazy. That's really my news story. That's LeBron awesome. James' clone goes to a game. <laughs> Social media still doesn't know what to do with it. That's so. fantastic. Anyways, what else you got before we get into one. this? I got one little funny fact here. It's kind of dumb. but uh, So, you know who Steve Jobs is? Was. Oh, yeah, that's right. He's dead. I forgot. Yes. The first public call he made from an iPhone, he called a Starbucks and he ordered 4,000 lattes. Then he just said, just kidding, and then he hung up. That was the first call ever made from an iPhone. You know, people always said he was kind of an asshole. <laughs> guess it doesn't surprise me. Anyways, <laughs> on our main topic. What is our main topic today, sir? This is 100% Pat's episode this week. Yeah, I'm not even going to fight it this week. This is definitely going to be my episode. Pat, so, tell us all about remote viewing you've been wanting to do this for a while yeah this is a topic i've wanted to talk about for a while remote viewing remote viewing is it's it's a very complicated topic now the reason why i think this topic is very important is because as we're going to get into this topic this is something that the government was funding until 1995 yes is really when they officially stopped it however they might still be doing shit like this today now the military is doing stuff along the similar lines today but it's not gonna be classified as remote viewing now remote viewing i think is a very specific term but before we get into remote viewing and what it is i think we have to talk about extrasensory perception yes i have that With, down extrasensory perception is a very broad term it is any time where people are able to get information from any source outside of the normal five senses meaning they don't see it they don't hear it they don't feel it they don't taste it they don't smell it but they're learning something somehow usually through psychic powers or something along those lines mm -hmm. that they'd otherwise have no access to no information about yada 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 mm -hmm. does that make any sense at all yes so this could be as small as you know how people sometimes get a gut feeling about something mm -hmm. and they make decisions about a gut feeling yes that is technically an extrasensory perception. Now, extrasensory perception, that was used uh, more for mind reading. Am I correct? With it, the with the U.S. military, uh, when Stargate was just start getting started in 1972, didn't they do, like, investigations into extrasensory perception to they use did, for, like, a mind reading type shit? They they did it for, there's, there's a lot going on with extrasensory perception. You're, you're not wrong about it, but extrasensory perception is a very, very, very broad term 
So while the mind reading aspect is yes, an example of extrasensory perception, it's a small example, if that makes any sense. Sure. So I'm going to get into the history of extrasensory perception really quick. It's not going to take too long. Sure. Basically, the concept is kind of crazy, but it's been part of human culture forever. If we look at the Bible, for example, the Bible has a lot of prophets. Technically, they are using extrasensory perception to make their predictions. Now, the prophets will say that God told them something, but they're not hearing it like literally unless they're actually having a like a literal manifestation of God. Mm-hmm which some prophets seem to have, some prophets seem not to have. It varies depending on the prophet talking, but it's not always I heard a voice, like I actually heard, like I'm talking to you. Right. A lot of times it's they interpreted hearing a voice, basically. Sure. So that concept, because you can't prove where the voice came from, you can't prove what they saw, it wasn't a physical thing that they saw, it was like a manifestation of whatever. Sure. Would be considered extrasensory perception in some circles. Okay. Now, the ancient Greeks and the Romans were known to go up to the mountain, I can't remember, Delphi, I think was the mountain, and they consulted the oracle. The oracle was using extrasensory perception to predict the future and answer questions that the Greeks and the Romans had about whatever problem they're going to run into. Hmm. Like, if they were getting ready to go to war, they had to get approval from the Oracle of Delphi. Uh, like, Julius Caesar, I think, went up there at one point, and he was talking about, like, who was going to kill me or something, or just stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Predicting the future is an example of extrasensory perception. Okay. Because you can't see the future, you can't know the future, right. but you're able to predict it. You know what I mean? Okay. So then, another famous example of this is Nostradamus who was a 16th century French physician who also, through a meditative process and a very specific meditative process, started writing his quatrains, which were just predictions about the future. And a lot of it was a lot of doom and gloom shit. But Nostradamus is known as a great prophet, like a more modern prophet. That is extrasensory perception. He was perceiving stuff that he had no access to. Okay. Whether he's true or not, we don't know. But that's what the concept is. Now, a lot of scientists will say that this doesn't actually exist. There's a physical explanation for why people might think that they're able to, ex- to use extrasensory perception to solve problems. But that's the concept. Does that make any sense? Yeah. So it can be as small as a gut feeling or a premonition or whatever. Like, hey, don't, I don't want to go down this dark alley. I feel like something bad is going to happen. And it can be as broad as predicting the future, knowing I could, like, see it. Theoretically, I could use my powers to see what's going on in the, on the opposite end of the world or whatever. So basically, almost everybody has some type of sensory perception. Yes, extrasensory perception. Ex- yes, extrasensory and perception. And people that are involved in this agree with that. Now, any, and they use, the, they use a comparison to music a lot, meaning anybody can hold a violin and try to do something. Some can learn how to play the violin, even if they don't have the talent. Some can pick it up and play the violin without ever learning anything about it and play it like mm-hmm. a master. Right. You know what I mean? So a lot of people use that, that type of analogy to discuss extrasensory perception, but most people that practice this think that most people can learn it to a degree. Hmm. So that is how we get into remote viewing because remote viewing is like a specific way of using extrasensory perception to see things that somebody might not otherwise have any access to. So that's how the term kind of gets into it. Are you okay? Are you with me so yeah, far? Yeah, I'm good. Yeah. Are you confused? You look really confused. No, I am. No, I am on board. So really the whole remote viewing process doesn't get into it until about the 1970s. Before then, there were people that claimed to have psychic powers. And back then people were able to like kind of like find groups of other people that claim to believe in similar things. And they'd like research together and they'd work together and they try to do experiments and whatnot. One of these people is a guy named Ingo Swan. Do you have that name down at all? Mm-mm. I've heard, I read, there are a bunch of articles I saw and I think Swan was one of the names. Yeah, Ingo Swan is, I think he's kind of the, the godfather of 
remote viewing as far as I'm concerned. Hmm. This guy had been, he was born in 1933 in uh, Colorado, I think. So he's an American. He only died in 2013. So he'd been, he's been around for a while. He's been writing for a while. Hmm. He was never a scientist, but he always claimed to have significant extrasensory powers. In the 1960s, he started looking for groups and whoever basically to help him research his powers and see if something could be done with it, basically. So he ended up doing research with a couple of different groups. The one guy he ended up hanging out with for a while was Cleve Baxter, who is best known as a polygraph operator who successfully proved that plants can respond to emotional stimuli. And this guy went so far as to look up a plant to a polygraph machine and was able to like positively identify criminals using the plant. Because when the criminal would be brought into the room, the plant that was in the room when the crime happened reacted based on the polygraph information much differently than when any other person would walk into the room. That's just ridiculous. It's ridiculous to think about, but there's a lot of science to actually back it up. And like there have been points where this has been used in like trial case and actually (laughs) Could you imagine going down? Because of a fucking plant. <laughs> but, you know, there's a lot of science that backs it up. Unreal. I'd so, be so pissed. That called into question sentience and consciousness because the plants are producing measurable data you know, just, about this. Just think if the plant just doesn't like you. And, I mean, and, and you're innocent and the plant just takes her ass down. <laughs> are you kidding me? Now, obviously, and the one thing with this remote viewing with all this shit is it is a tool. It's not proof positive. <laughs> and the CIA is going to say that this, the remote viewing has never been used to definitively prove anything, but it's a tool to augment perception of what they think is going on. So if you think about it this way, they've got a dead case, a case that they can't figure out anything about. They'll kick it over to the remote viewer and be like, hey, here are a few people we need you to meditate on and whatever. In certain instances, the remote viewers have like pointed them in the right direction. Mm-hmm. Like the one woman claimed that she was able to locate a guy in... Montana or Wyoming or somewhere. And she got the name of the city wrong, but only by one letter. And when they sent agents out there who had no, there was no reason to think that this guy was out there. They're actually able to find the guy within a hundred miles of the city. I think I read that. Yeah. It's used as a tool much more than it is used as a, like a proof positive thing. Because at the end of the day, what's going on is people are using extrasensory perception to figure shit out. Crazy. Now this Ingo Swan guy who I was talking about was working with the plant guy for a while. Eventually, he ended up bouncing between a couple different groups, but he got his big break in the early 1970s when the Stanford Research Institute reached out to him. Now, the Stanford Research Institute is a research institute still around today. It is not part of Stanford University, but it kind of associated with Stanford University. Basically, people working, like, associated with the university wanted a separate institute where they could do different studies that weren't associated with the college itself. Sure. Which, there's different advantages and disadvantages to that, but they could do a lot more. He didn't have to be constrained to typical academic processes with this institute. They could do research based on stuff that they thought was going to be important, but might not get the academic stamp of approval, basically. Sure. So, this research institute has done a whole lot. They claim to have invented the inkjet printer and a whole bunch of other random Hmm. shit. So... Like, stuff has happened there. Now, these guys were Dr. Harold Putthoff and a guy named Russell Targ, who were physicists. Now, Harold Putthoff was an actual, like, physicist. Russell Targ was more just a guy who was interested in physics, but ended up getting these, like, good jobs anyways. So they got into touch with Ingo Swan, who by that point had been working on the process of creating experiments to prove his psychic abilities. Like, he would stare at shit in a box, and, like, independent <laughs> researchers would, would, like, create a controlled environment for him to figure out what the hell was in the box, and he'd always get it right. So they were creating a lot of, like, measurable data to prove that Ingo Swan had some talents. He was looking really good at this shit. Mm. Now, together, they kind of put together the term remote viewing as a specific set of protocols that you have to get into mentally 
to start actually like seeing like major things and understanding major things, whether it was a location far away or details about a person or even details about a past event or even a future event. Remote viewing has never been confined to just the here and now. It could be a point in the future, a point in the past, any place on the earth, and as we're going to find out, any place in the entire universe they could remote view. So after he got to the Stanford Research Institute, Ingo Swan started working with these guys a little bit more. They were trying to develop different experiments to prove the legitimacy of remote viewing as a science. Now you can't really do that because there's nothing really to prove it. And Ingo Swan himself would say that there's never going to be enough data to convince the scientific community of the legitimacy of this. Mm-hmm. We can just keep getting shit right and hope that the right people care about it basically is what was going on. Right. So at one point he developed a method of using geographic coordinates to remote view. So they give you a set of coordinates on the earth. You don't know where the coordinates actually are or where they're pointing to, but you get in your head to the, where the coordinates should be. And then you see, you're able to see what's going on basically. So this was kind of a controversial topic, but this is where it started to take off because they dropped they gave Ingo Swan coordinates to the Lake Victoria in Africa. They didn't tell him that it was Lake Victoria. They just gave him coordinates. Mm-hmm. So he starts to think, and he's like zeroing in on the coordinates, like down to like the like the foot, like where the coordinates should be. And he's like, well, you know, I'm seeing water, and I'm seeing a little bit of stuff going on, but I'm, I'm on a peninsula. Like, I'm, there's a peninsula right here. And he was adamant about the peninsula. And when they were looking at the data, they were like, well, you know, that was a miss. You, there's no peninsula there. And he came out of the session. He was like, he was really upset. He's like, I don't know what to tell you. I saw. Peninsula. I'm at you. You guys are wrong. I'm not wrong. I was on a peninsula, and then they found a old atlas in like a like a bookshop. There's over a hundred dollars to, to buy, and it had like super detailed maps of like the entire world. One of the maps was Lake Victoria, and it had the coordinates listed. When they go to the map of the actual coordinates that they gave him in this book, it, there was a peninsula right there. No shit. That's so crazy. At that point, the po- the process of remote viewing started to get a little bit more refined more, and it was this Ingo Swan guy the entire time who was really the point man of the entire project. Now, the CIA got involved pretty quickly. I'm sure. Because in 1970, there was a book published called Psychic Discoveries Behind the Iron Curtain, which we don't really know how true this book was, but it claimed that the USSR had made significant leaps in psychological warfare. Yes. And the U.S. government felt like they were very far behind in this department. And psychokinesis. Yes. among I I like that word. Among all sorts of other shit. (laughs) So they thought that they were far behind. So the CIA started looking for whoever the hell they could to start doing projects so that the United States could close the psychic gap. And the last podcast on the left did an episode about this. Theirs wasn't as good as I hoped it was going to be. This was, it was an earlier episode. I think they did it about six years ago. Mm. But they talked about this. So I'm not, I'm not going to rehash what they talk about. But it, it's at least worth listening to. You get a lot of the names in there. Sure. But they were talking about how this was all a result of the psychological gap needing to be closed or the psychic warfare gap needing to be closed. Sure. Whatever the case, they started a 20-year project with the Stanford Research Institute. Mm-hmm. And Ingo Swan was involved in a lot of this. But it wasn't until 1976, and some sources say 1978, but it was really 1976 when the CIA contracted project ended up getting incorporated into the U.S. Army. Yeah, and it moved to Maryland. And the U.S. Army took it, yep, to Fort Meade, Maryland. And this was under the Army Intelligence and Security Command. So after a few years of good results, 
the CIA decided that the Army needed this information. And the secret project, best known as Project Stargate, or the Stargate Project, depending on your sources, yep. took off. And this project ran from, we're going to say probably 1976 until 1995. But it incorporated the CIA projects prior, which would have been as early as, what, 71 or 72? 72. So we've got over 20 years of Project Stargate or the Stargate Project. Now, it, it operated under a bunch of different names. Uh, and, and Congress just continued to approve funding for for it so and that is the one thing that needs to get considered is yes congress liked this they were into it and what's interesting and this was a secret project but this was never a black budget project mm-hmm. black budget projects are the types of projects that nobody really knows about yep this was something that like government officials knew was going on but the public didn't know about and not everybody on the base knew what this was going on but a lot of people did mm-hmm. if you had enough security clearance you could know that stargate project was going on and it had a whole bunch of different names uh project sunstreak was one uh there's a bunch of different names for this project but stargate it ended up getting in 1991 they ended up incorporating it all under the name stargate so pretty cool now shit like this doesn't just happen because you need an awful lot of people on board to kind of make this kind of thing happen because let's face it if you're in charge of the army intelligence and security command you're probably a high-ranking military official you probably got a lot of career under your belt a reputation uphold yada 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 you're taking a risk if you're incorporating a remote viewing project into your security command. Right. Luckily for everybody, we had a guy named General Bert Stubblebine. <laughs> Jesus. Bert Stubblebine in the mix. And the guys in the last podcast on the left talk about him a little bit. I'm sure they make fun of his last name. They definitely do. But this guy was a character to end all characters. He was a major proponent of hypothetical psychological warfare. And he really thought that the key to military success moving forward is going to be to use the mind as a weapon. And among other things, this guy was highly invested in different psychological warfare concepts. So he was the perfect guy to have in charge of uh, the Army Intelligence and Security Command because... He was into all this shit. And right. it just happened to work out that the, one of the Army's chief intelligence officers was really into this kind of thing. <laughs> so when the CIA was going to, like, we're going to reincorporate this Project Stargate at Fort Meade, he was like, fuck yeah, so let's do this. All right. So he was taking a personal interest in all this. Finally, my kind of thing. Now, he started to get in really, really invested in the, what the hell was going on. And at one point, he created parameters for his officers in charge of this. Like, he said that they all had to have the power to bend a spoon <laughs> <laughs> with their mind. <laughs> And if you've seen the movie, uh, if you've seen the movie, uh, the men who stare at goats, there's a scene with a general that was like trying to prove to other people that he could run through a wall. <laughs> and this was this guy. No shit. He was trying to, he thought that he could run through a wall if he uses psychic powers. And he would do demonstrations of this to the top command of this program. He also would like try to levitate in front of them. And we don't know how successful any of this was. This is hilarious. But by 1984, he lost his commission entirely because review boards realized that he was like completely off his rocker. Yeah, sounds like it. But the program stuck around until 1995 officially. (laughs) Now, at one point, they had like 30 remote viewers in the mix, like on site. Yeah. And they were all doing this out of this like little shack. It literally like it looks like a small like a small white house. Just a little just a little rundown building basically. <laughs> and that's where they were doing all this all this research from. And they would sit them down in rooms basically, give them something to think about. They'd think about it and they'd produce data. 
Now, the problem is, is they were basically a resource. So they only got used when they were called in, basically, or called upon. So they never knew what the hell was going to happen. And they spent how much money on this? The final budget. Wasn't it like $20 million? At one point, it probably was close to that. The final budget annual in 1995 was $500,000 only. <laughs> I think they had like three or four guys on staff at that point. It still it just seems like a lot. <laughs> yeah, it definitely was. But like this was a real program that was going on. There's another guy in the mix named David Morehouse who was brought in and trained under this program. Meaning he was an army intelligence officer. He was just an intelligence officer. They were like, hey, we got the job for you. We're going to bring you in and teach you how to be a remote viewer. <laughs> now this guy, and this is all from his own personal website, and I believe he is still alive today. He was commissioned in the regular army in 1979 as an officer, and was one one of the like most distinguished like military academy graduates out there. No shit. Served two years of duty, but he was mostly like an infantry officer, and he ended up in command of an elite airborne ranger company. Mm. So he had a very diverse range of excuse me. He had a very he was a paratrooper. He did a lot within the U.S. Army, and from 1987 to 19. 1991, he was assigned to several high classified projects in the Army and the Intelligence Security Command that I've been talking about the entire time. And the Defense Intelligence Agency was also in the mix during this. And he was brought in as a remote viewer. Now, this guy has a ton of quotes in my favorite book, The Alien Agenda by Jim Mars. Jim Mars did a section of his entire book on remote viewing, but mostly from the alien aspect. And this David Morehouse guy who, like I said, highly decorated officer, served 19 years in the military as an officer. Lots of people thought that he was going to end up being a general at one point. They thought he was like just like being groomed for like a top position, basically. Kind of like Kurtz in Apocalypse Now. He and a bunch of these other people would do like their own remote viewing processes because every time when they would get into a remote viewing session, it'd always end up seeing UFOs. Like, mm. invariably, it would, they would always come up. And as they started to do these processes, they started to think, well, if we can, like, reliably see what's going on in other parts of the world. And most of this was used to do, like, spying on the Soviet Union, like, missile silos, technology research centers. At one point, they found, like, Mikhail Gorbachev's, like, vacation house or something. <laughs> they were, like, spy on it, basically. They started to realize that, hey, if we can do this on Earth, we might be able to do it on another planet. So, th- so, then they- <laughs> Jesus. so then they started to remote view Mars and they do Mars. And then even Ingo Swan back in 1970s, when the CIA started funding the project, when he was with the Stanford research Institute, he got news that NASA was sending up one of their, one of their uh, probes to Jupiter. So he decided he was going to remote view Jupiter and see what he could see. And then bringing back a whole bunch of data that the pros later confirmed. Like he was able to see that Jupiter had rings. And he's able to like analyze like the like the weather conditions of this. Damn. So Ingo Spahn was pretty good at this. But he's also able to look at Mercury. And he's, he determined that Mercury had a magnetic field in an atmosphere before NASA did. Ingo Swan did. <laughs> so knowing about that, this David Morehouse guy, this army ranger, was doing similar shit. And he would like go to Mars. And they'd go to different planets and shit like that. At one point, he decided. Now this was on his own because he had access access to the protocols he knew the process so he was at his couch at home and he decided to do a remote viewing session but without like a like a set location and he ended up in like some like other galactic like universe basically and he said that he walked in like a big ass chamber and there were these three ginormous like god type people with like these like golden beards and shit <laughs> and they were huge and they like they saw him but he said that it felt like they saw him as if he was a fly on the wall and they didn't really care about him and then he said that these like three like jil- ginormous gods were commanding like an army of like humans who had like a hieroglyphic like wall in front of them that was gold and it was a control panel 
and they're like flying some ship or something. And he said it was like an out of body experience. He used the term bilocate, which means that he felt that his spiritual essence left his body and was up wherever the fuck he was at. And he didn't really know where the hell he was at, but it was this like weird like chamber, like a spaceship slash church slash like God hall basically. And you sure this guy wasn't on like DMT or something? No, he had a really good track record. <laughs> but what's weird is he got kicked out of the army. He got decommissioned. or he got discharged with I think a less than honorable discharge because he was writing a book about what he was doing the entire time and he was getting ready to publish it. And they didn't want him to they publish it. They didn't want him to publish it. Oh, and they my. started making up all this shit. And he fought in court against the allegation that the army made against him and ended up winning. So he ended up getting a fully honorable discharge afterwards. But he was like, fuck it. I'm going to do my own shit now. So he goes out and he talks about it. There's another guy named Mel Riley who was part of the program as well at, at Fort Meade who was doing this shit. And this guy's a little bit of a character too, but he was doing a lot of the Martian research and they kept seeing these UFOs. So they started doing research on like the UFOs themselves and what the fuck was going on. Mm-hmm. And the consensus of the group that was doing all this remote viewing was that there were th- at least three alien species coming to earth. One of them was an ancient Martian species that had to leave Mars like 56 million years ago because the same thing that killed the dinosaurs wiped out most of the population on Mars and made Mars inhabitable. So the people that survived were people that were living underground and there are Martians underground today that still live, but a lot of them have bases in New Mexico as well. <laughs> oh my God. And basically they, they do some like, like they like export shit from the earth back to Mars. And that's why we see UFOs all the time, especially in that area is because it's just the exp- exportation, but this Martian species is out there. And all the remote viewers see this shit. Like, they all end up seeing something with these Martians. And they're, like, humanoid. They're kind of like humans, but they're different. They're a little bit different. And they they have a different opinion about how we use our resources than humans seem to have. Hmm. But they're kind of like a desperate race, like, kind of on their last legs of, like, existing. Sure. And they were kind of hoping that humans would be able to help them, like, rebuild Mars or at least sustain the life of their species. But they're not at the point where they're ready to, like, form an alliance with the humans yet or anything like that. Maybe they're waiting on Elon Musk to make it to Mars in the first place it could be possible but these remote viewers claim that like when you like our probes haven't gone beneath the surface of mars yet the remote viewers claim that they can see beneath the surface and they can see like the compounds of these these martian people and whatnot Mm. and there's a lot of data in the remote viewing world that supports this and they also talk about the gray aliens and then they talk about a third group called the transcendentals who are not they're like ghosts basically and the best way they can describe them is either ghosts or angels. They said they have a lot of the characteristics of like biblical angels mm. where they're like not really corporeal. They're not really physically present, but they're more of an idea, but they can still do stuff. So there's a lot of remote viewers that believe that all this shit's real. Now, this is, <laughs> this is where it gets really ridiculous. If that wasn't ridiculous enough, they're, they do a whole lot of shit with different programs. Like they had the remote viewers try to analyze crop circles at one point. And these guys all gave back basically the same thing where the crop circles were intergalactic star signs for alien races, meaning that they're used as like messenger. They're used as messengers to communicate between two different alien species and they have nothing to do with Earth. Sure. The only problem is that one remote viewer doing this ended up saying that it wasn't street signs. It was actually the result of like like flight school, but for aliens. When they flew too closely to the ground, basically... They, like, leave, like, skid marks, and the crop circles were, like, skid marks from that. Oh, so. I don't know about all <laughs> See, what we got to do is go to one of these classes and learn how to remote view, because apparently you can learn it. Yeah, and that's the other thing, too, is that you can learn all this shit, and the protocols are designed to be teachable. Like, at one point, like, they were trying to come up with recruits to actually do their processes, and they were talking about, like, who was involved, and, in, like, the one institute had a secretary who the guys were like, hey, you know, we think you can really, we think you got the talent. 
So they had her doing remote viewing, and she ended up becoming like an accomplished remote viewer just because she was working for the right institution at the right time <laughs> as a secretary. Right. Now, one thing that gets really ridiculous is even though this was a military project, they were teaching the protocols to people outside of the military, like military contractors. One of these guys was named Ray Borden, who was a linguist, but ended up doing basically contract work for a military contractor and ended up learning the remote viewing protocols. He never met the military remote viewers. He never talked to any of them. But back in the 80s, he was doing his own remote viewing and ended up remote viewing the remote viewers. <laughs> oh, my God. He claims that he was he was in a remote viewing session and for, for this for this unnamed company. And he was like wandering around the world and like there were like bubbles popping up from a certain spot. It ended up being Fort Meade, Maryland. <laughs> <laughs> he ended up he ended up remote viewing the remote viewers from the military. Uh, it's like Inception, <laughs> but remote viewing. The remote viewers remote view other remote viewers. Pretty much. Who, who are remote viewing other remote viewers. Pretty much. It's ridiculous. That's but hilarious. Now, this guy claims that he never met this Mel Riley guy that I was talking about with the whole Martian shit. They had, like, spot-on identical descriptions of the Martian shit and the greys and the transcendental aliens, except this guy called them the incorporeals. But they were talking about, like, the exacts. Like, you could, like, put this up mm-hmm. next to each other and it's the exact same. And the other thing, too, is with remote viewing, is they say that a team is a better than just one person out there doing it. Because it seems like each team ends up finding a piece of the puzzle. And when you put it all together, you get a really good full picture to the point where they think it's, like, really accurate. And the reason why this kept getting funding is because... I'm almost done. I'm almost done. I promise. No, go ahead. Is because they were able to determine that cases that use remote viewing were, like, 10% more likely to produce a true result if remote viewing was involved in the process at some point. Hmm. So say they had a mystery they were trying to solve. Like, they were trying to find a missing person. They were 10% more likely to find that person if the remote viewers were on the task than if the remote viewers weren't on the task. That's crazy. It's that statistic packaged up really well that kept getting Congress to keep voting for this shit because they thought it was working okay. Now, Ingo Swan, who I've been talking about, was involved in a lot of criminal cases. 25 cases brought him in to remote view. Guess how many of those got solved? All of them. Three. <laughs> he had a 12% success rate. Oh, no. But it was enough to determine, the, the, the 12% was enough to determine that, hey, there's something to this. So, For a okay, very long time. Hold, hold on here. Okay. So, if this guy, he remote views all this crazy shit. Yes. Okay. And he's, he does these criminal cases, and he's only 12% effective. Yep. How do we know he's not 12% effective with all the other bullshit he said? We don't. And that's what he was trying to do, is he was trying to say that there had to be like a statistical threshold that makes the whole thing valid and he was hoping for like a 65 percent success rate which that brings up another question is how the hell are we determining these numbers as to to what is relevant and what is not relevant but what gets really interesting is i'm gonna wrap this discussion up are you do you have you gotten all your material in yeah i mean basically yeah so this might be a topic we're gonna have to revisit but i'm gonna wrap this discussion up by saying that the cia ended up retaking over project stargate in 1995 before they decided to shut it down almost immediately so the army decided they were kind of done with it CIA regained like jurisdiction over it and then shut it down immediately. They commissioned a re- like a debriefing report about the whole thing. And in the debriefing report, they tried to downplay the positive yeah. aspects of it. They said it all failed. They said it all failed. Now, their reasoning for saying that it all failed 
and they basically said this almost word for word in the report is basically there was statistical evidence that showed that something was going on, that something positive was going on, that it was producing positive results. However, since they couldn't understand why it was producing positive results, <laughs> it is their determination that it is not actually producing positive results. And they let they, they left it at that, basically, packaged it up to say that it failed, and then that was the end of remote viewing being sponsored by the United States government. In 1995, it took until 1995 for this thing to shut down. Mm. Now, the problem is that all these guys, like these like the Morehouse guy I talked about and Riley, they all started doing this stuff independently on their own after they left the military because they believed in it because to them it was real. And when you read the descriptions of these guys, like the first time that they do it, it's like an aha moment where they're like, holy hell, how the hell did I just describe this building a thousand miles away? Like, how the hell did I do it? And then go there and then realize how accurate they were. And the guy, the new guy would like walk around like just wide eyed and blown away. Everybody else was very like calm and relaxed about it. Because they knew how how they knew how it worked. Right. They knew that it worked, and they weren't nearly as surprised as the new guy was. So there are a lot of military people that were full on into this shit. That's crazy. Now, obviously, man. there's a lot of stigma around this type of topic, but overall, there are a lot of people out there that believe this is, that this shit's real. What do you think, Pat? Well, I mean, we talked about Edgar Mitchell and the Wedic Sciences on yeah. the one episode. This is right in line with it. And a lot of these people work together. Uh, the one guy. One of the guys I mentioned, I can't remember which one, I think it was the, the Putthoff guy, is working with Tom DeLong in that disclosure project that I talked about. Mm-hmm. So they're working together. It's very intermingled with everything else that we've talked about. Mm. Stephen Greer is doing similar shit to this now with the CE5 protocol. So that's a little bit different, but it utilizes the same concepts. Mm-hmm. So this stuff isn't new. This remote viewing shit, this extrasensory perception shit isn't new to the community. But well, this is a clear-cut example of the government funding a program that essentially added up to a bunch of guys sitting in a room thinking about something. <laughs> and the jury is honestly out as of what they were doing. But this got 20, 23 years of official government funding. It's ridiculous to think about. Pretty crazy. So that kind of wraps up the discussion. I feel like I could have done so much more with this. This was definitely no, my you episode. You explained that pretty awesomely. This was definitely my episode. I apologize. I don't know. Awesomely. awesomely. We'll take it. We'll take it. I'll I'll tell you what. I'm going to go home. I'm going to do a remote viewing session to see if that's a real world word or not. Dude, like, if we ever have expendable time and expendable cash, let's do one of these classes. Absolutely. I'd love to do this type of shit. Most I've seen are like one to two weeks long, and they range between two and four grand. Yeah. And I should say a lot. A lot of this is tied into Scientology. No, yeah, not sure. all of it is, but a lot of these guys that really got into it were also like into Scientology back in the 70s. Shit. So it is different. There is different shit going on. Scientology is more about manipulating yourself into believing something, hmm. or this is more expanding your mind. And lots of people find that when they get into this type of study, their religious views are reinforced hmm. as opposed to shot down. Interesting. So it is a very interesting concept, but it's really weird reading reports about different people that weren't really working together. Now they're still seeing the same thing. Hmm. Like that one guy I mentioned that was working independently, still seeing the same aliens that the military guys were seeing. Hmm. So that's remote viewing. That's about all I got for that. I feel like I could do so much more. That's pretty awesome. That was a really interesting topic. Anyways, we might be revisiting this one. We might get some fact checks in. Definitely. But I spent a lot of time reading about this today, so I feel like... I'm sure Tim will be all over it. Yeah, and a lot of these guys that I mentioned are still alive today, and they're still doing this type of shit today. Mm-hmm. Russell Targ is still alive. That Putthoff guy is still alive. Uh, I think Morehouse is still alive. And the ones that are dead have died recently. Like, you know, Swan died in 2017. Mm-hmm. A couple of those generals died recently, like within the last couple of years. So this is a very new thing. Even though it seems like it's ancient history, it was very new. 
Definitely. So, anyways, that was our discussion. Hopefully that ended up being a great episode. That was great. Before we get out of here, listener-wise has been good. We had 38 unique people hit the show this week. That's awesome. Just this week. That's pretty good. That's really good. As far as I'm concerned. Uh, Thank you, guys. Please share us on social media. Please share our stuff. Talk, Tell your friends about it. Talk about it. Tell whoever. We don't really care at this point. We're just trying to get listeners. So Definitely. Uh, the Mandela Effect episode was a really good one. That one had a really good performance, so... Fun episode. That Definitely. That'll that be a really good discussion. Definitely. So thank you very much, guys, for listening. This was our remote viewing episode. It might be a little bit tedious to listen to at times, but we'll see how it comes together. No, Pat kept it real real interesting the whole time. You did a great job. I try. So thank you very much, guys, for listening. Peace. Margaret Duel- Diolo. It's D-I-L-U-L-L-O. The Luo, Margaret Duulo, God fucking damn it, Margaret Dululo, actually I lied. Fuck, dude. What is going on <laughs> right now? What is happening right now? I'm, like, I don't I'm having what... a I'm having a mental breakdown. <laughs> Anyways, she was drinking a Yingling Lager each day. Bird of the Year spokeswoman Laura Keown said in a statement, A bird for bats is also a vote for predator control, habitat restoration, and climate action to protect our bats and their feathered neighbors. <laughs> I don't even know what Oh, is. I thought you'd like that one. You know, Starbucks kind of annoys me. Yeah, it's just one of those companies. I don't like to go there. I've only ever been there with people. Like, I never go there on my own. Yes, I go there with Paige, and I don't know. I go, I don't like going there, but I don't See, know. I just, I don't really like Starbucks. For me, it's like, if I'm drinking coffee, I'm drinking black coffee for the most part. So what am I going to do? Am I going to walk into Starbucks? You can't even order a large black coffee. That's not a thing. Yeah, you gotta like learn how to speak Spanish before basically you, before you walk in there. <clears throat> like, who the hell do they think they are? Yeah, it's quite. I don't know. It's pretty ridiculous. Anyways, that's funny. I would do the same thing if I received jobs. It's like every time you go to Starbucks, it's like playing twenty questions. Like, there's so many questions they ask you. They ask you what kind of milk you want, and then and then it's like three different types of milk. And then you gotta figure out what size, and there's you have to know Spanish. You don't, you don't know that you don't you, know. The you sizes. don't even know the sizes. I ask. I always say large because I don't yeah. know what their large is. Like I don't know, right? It's like every other place <clears throat> in the entire world has used a standardized method of sizing. Yeah. For some reason, Starbucks has to be different <laughs> to make things less practical on purpose. You know, and then 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 they ask you if you want shit drizzled on top. And then they want, you know, it's just, you know, then then they ask you if you want the fucking seasonal cup, and it's like there's there's, there's so a many seasonal there, cup. There's like see, yeah, it's just there's so much shit to it. Yeah, it's exhausting. I go to McDonald's every day and get my black coffee. There I don't, you go. They're all make it myself. They have good coffee. See, I don't do a lot of coffee. There's a lot going on with coffee. Like you got to fucking grind the beans, you got to put it on the filter, you got to pour the pot in. It's a process, so I don't do coffee a whole lot. You grind the beans at your house? Yes. Why don't you just buy them already already grounded up? Because my father says that that's not how you do it. My father bought me a coffee grinder 
Specifically for this. Jesus. So I gotta fucking make it work. And nobody can make it work except for me. Like, you gotta push the button, you gotta hold it down. Ah, uh, man. And that is literally how my father drank coffee back when we lived together. That's how he does it every single day. Every day I had to wake up to the fucking coffee grinder. <laughs> every single day he does it. That's fantastic. So. That's hilarious. But that's just how, that's just how it was. Growing up, that's how I thought coffee was. You had to grind the beans every single time. You don't have to, though. Well, I agree to disagree. Anyways, 